0: Today we are discussing legal considerations in advanced directives and advanced care planning as part of the American Thoracic Society uh, Ethics Committee podcast series. Uh, today I am interviewing uh, Dr. Erin Sullivan DiMartino and Dr. Joshua Rolnick. Uh, Dr. Erin Sullivan DiMartino obtained her medical degree from Dartmouth Medical School and is currently in a Assistant Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where she uh, also holds a joint appointment in biomedical ethics research. She is a graduate of the fellowship program at the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at the University of Chicago. Uh, our other guest today, Joshua Rolnick. Uh, Dr. Rolnick is a clinical scholar uh, in the National Clinician Scholars Program. Program at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is also affiliated with Palliative and Advanced Illness Research Center in the Department of Medicine there. He holds both an MD from Stanford University as well as a JD from the Yale School of Law. And my name is Elizabeth Zulos. I am a first year attending physician in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the Oregon Clinic and Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. I, along with Erin, am on the American Thoracic Society Ethics and Conflict of Interest Committee. Uh, so I'm going to start out today's discussion by defining some terms, uh, terms that are really at the foundation of what we are going to talk about today, and that remain confusing, uh, I believe, for uh, practicing clinicians, especially those who are just starting out their careers. So I'd like to turn uh, to Erin first and ask you, Erin, to help us define uh, a short list of important terms, starting with advanced directives.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. So... Advance directive is what I think of as kind of an umbrella term for um, a legal document that usually will include either a living will or a power of attorney or both. A living will is a document where a person prospectively voices wishes and preference about medical care for uh, themselves for a future date. And a power of attorney is a designation of another individual to whom you are giving kind of the power to make medical decisions on your behalf if you are unable to make decisions uh, at some future date because of a health crisis. Um, Essentially, if you have lost the capacity to make your own medical decisions, you no longer have decisional capacity, then you would be relying upon your advance directive, um, which could include, of course, both this living will, so a a statement of preferences, but also uh, a power of attorney or an individual uh, with whom you've bestowed this uh, power to make decisions on your behalf.
0: Thanks Erin, that's really helpful. Um, I was hoping that you could also clarify for our listeners the difference between capacity and competence.
1: Sure, so capacity is um, a clinical assessment and it's made real time uh, at the time of an individual's, uh, at a time when an individual is faced with a decision. Uh, And it's actually kind of a scale, so you may have Uh, we think of it almost on a sliding scale. You may have the capacity to, say, um, designate a decision maker or state who you would like to make decisions for you, but you may not at that same moment have the capacity to, um, say, consent to a complicated medical procedure or an an operation. Um, Competence is more of a binary legal term it's a judgment that's passed down through the court systems often reliant upon testimony from medical professionals about um, whether an individual is able to manipulate complex um, medical information and, and synthesize that into making and articulating a decision um, but competence is usually a permanent um, designation. So once somebody has been declared through the court system incompetent, typically he or she would not then lapse back into decisional competence. But that there's probably some variation there.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Guardian and surrogate decision maker, can you clarify those for our listeners?
1: Yeah, so a guardian is an individual who has been appointed through the court system. The guardian may or may not be related to the patient. May be, um, you know, a professional individual who is um, designated to make decisions through the court system uh, on behalf of a person who doesn't have another decision maker and who lacks the competence to make their own decisions. A surrogate decision maker, on the other hand, is an individual who uh, has not been prospectively identified by the incapacitated patient, but who, at the moment of an incapacitating illness, steps into the role of decision-maker. So it's, that person has probably the least legal power because they haven't been appointed by the court system, and they also haven't been appointed through an advance directive by the patient in advance of an illness.
0: Okay, thank you, and I know that the surrogacy is something that was a real focus of your recent work in the New England Journal, and that's something that we will return to later in the discussion, um, an area where things can get a little hairy. Um, before we move on, um, I would also like to clarify um, physician orders for life-sustaining treatment, um, which most clinicians uh, probably know as the POLST. Um, can you just remind us how the pulse differs uh, from an advanced directive?
1: Sure. The easiest way to draw a line between those is that an advanced directive is a legal document and a POLST is a medical order. So whereas um, an advanced directive is kind of in the purview and legislated by states, a is also created by different states but then is completed in a medical setting. And in order to be validated, it's supposed to be a reflection of a conversation between a patient and his or her clinician. And in order to be validated simply requires um, the physician or advanced um, practitioner to sign a set of orders that are to be effective in the event of, um, you know, kind of life-threatening illness.
0: Okay, thank you for those answers. Um, So I think now that we've sort of defined our critical terms, um, I'd like to move on and ask uh, a question to you, Josh. Um, Something that was really interesting to me reading uh, both of your recent work is uh, just how sort of varied the system of advance directives is uh, in the United States. Um, So I was hoping that you could provide some perspective for our listeners and maybe a brief history um, on the initiation of advanced directive laws. Um, How did they come to be regulated on a state level? And can you offer any perspective on how they fell into the jurisdiction of lawyers rather than physicians?
2: Sure, sure. The history of uh, living wills and advanced directive laws, Dates back to the 1970s, and it was really a response to um, a growing recognition by the courts that uh, patients had um, personal autonomy to uh, decline medical treatments. But then a legal problem arose. How do patients refuse treatments at a time when they uh, lack capacity to do so, and to complicate that? Uh, by default, patients are understood to consent uh, to life-saving treatments um, at a time when they don't have capacity. Uh, they're meant to consent constructively, as, it, as it's called, which is just that, that consent is implied. Um, and at the same time, how do you protect physicians from legal liability for withholding or withdrawing uh, life support? And so the solution to this uh, what was perceived to be a legal problem was found in the law, and that was to create uh, a means for people to pre-specify their wishes about future care. Um, and because of the concern about uh, physician liability, that document, the advanced directive, was designed to give physician's legal immunity um, for acting in ways consistent with a legally valid advance directive. And the first state to pass a living will law was California in 1976, and then other states followed, and uh, first laws govern living wills, and then over time there came to be more law about uh, healthcare proxies, about decision making when there isn't an official proxy, um, and then later advanced directives that sort of brought together uh, those laws. And then uh, most recently, and I know we'll talk a little more about this, about um, Pulse and other um, what are called out-of-hospital uh, do not um to why state law. Well, healthcare decision-making is traditionally the domain of state law. State law governs what is capacity, uh, what is informed consent, uh, even what is health care. And so it was natural to locate um, advanced directives and uh, surrogate law in state law. And the variability is it's really not a surprise to lawyers, even though it, it may come as a surprise to doctors. It's, It's really just one example of many instances where there uh, is a lot of variability between states in law uh, governing common uh, issues. And so this is is something that's seen elsewhere but has increasingly become a problem in medicine as um, people have become very portable and and there's been a need to um, have their wishes transfer from one jurisdiction to another.
0: Okay, thank you so much for that answer. Um, And I did want to follow up with the idea of a PULST. You point out in your recent perspective piece, the legalizing advanced directives, the sort of irony behind the idea that the PULST is sort of the least legislated um, of many of uh, what we consider advanced directives um, and i think that may particularly come as a surprise to a lot of physicians in training especially in an icu setting where i think there is a, a tend, perhaps a tendency to even overemphasize the pulse uh, i don't know if you would agree with that um it's such a, a critical document it's usually the first thing we see um, and often there's a um, perhaps an inappropriate focus on code status in particular, uh, which the Pulse often dictates. So um, if you could just comment uh, on that a little bit and then maybe provide some perspective on how the Pulse came to be separated out from the rest of advanced directed planning.
2: Well, the, the Pulse uh, came about a little bit late in the game. It was uh, started in Oregon in the 1990s, and then it it spread to other states, and it's, it's really taken hold nationally in the last 10 years. Now there are um, quite a number of states who have statutes uh, governing the Pulse. And as Aaron mentioned before, the, the Pulse is designed, unlike an advanced directive, to be the product of a discussion between a patient and a medical provider, and just like in other situations, that that product is designed to be an actionable medical order. And so because of that, it it came to be designed not to require the kind of witnesses and notaries and advanced directives. Uh, which is seen more as a uh, legal document similar to a will and a trust, but instead the signature of a medical provider um, as a, other medical orders uh, require a, a signature. And because it is more specific and it does involve um, actionable um, orders about um, different forms of treatment, I think it's, it's come to be emphasized more in the medical setting. Uh, living wills are um, sometimes too vague to, to really um, inform specific decisions that need to be made, but because of the pulse specificity, it's, it's come to be seen as more relevant.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, and then the the other part of this question that I think I'll turn to Erin uh, in terms of, of historical perspective uh, is the surrogacy ladder in particular. And Erin, I was hoping that you could comment a little bit on um, maybe the history of its development. Your recent work really highlights how much variation uh, there is there.
1: Sure. So a surrogacy ladder is kind of a term that we used for um, many states will have uh, endowed some power to individuals who haven't been prospectively identified by the patient, uh, and yet they step into a role of decisional authority when the patient loses capacity to make his or her own medical decisions. And this is really in recognition of the continued low completion rate of advanced directives among American adults. Usually, um, completion rates hover in the 20 to 30% range. And so 70 to 80% of American adults don't have a directive or, say, a court-appointed guardian and therefore are using this safety net, a lot of them unbeknownst to them. Um, that has been established by their individual states. And so um, there was some model legislation that came about in the 1990s suggesting an order of preference for if somebody were to lose capacity and hadn't um, created an advance directive document who would be the likely people who would be most able to speak to his or her values and preferences and to step into a decision-making role. And so um, a lot of the states that have drafted and passed legislation uh, at least mirror parts of this model legislation that was proposed. Um, And typically it will start, uh, a surrogacy ladder as we call it, will start with say, spouse, adult child, um, parent, and then um, there is increasing variability as you move farther down that ladder as to first the number of different individuals who a state um, may appoint into the role of decision maker, kind of the level of granularity and detail that they require, Uh, and also there can be quite a bit of variability within the different positions of those ladders, who gets priority. Um, One particular group of people would be the adult friend or partner or somebody who doesn't have kind of a legal standing in that individual's life and isn't a relative, but yet may be able to speak very well to uh, the patient's wishes and values.
0: And I know that this subject was something that you uh, paid a, a lot of attention to in your recent work looking at variations on the state to state level. Um, can you comment about uh, what you found in your research to be some of the perhaps biggest surprises either in uh, what we call the surrogacy ladder or other, uh, other aspects of advanced directive planning? Um, what were some of perhaps the most extreme variations that you found
1: yeah, I think some of the most interesting variations were the ones toward the end of those ladders in terms of the number of rungs. Some states only had four quote-unquote rungs in that surrogacy hierarchy or ladder. And other, others went out to 10 or 11 positions and even had the foresight to think about, say, if a member of a religious order were to lose decisional capacity, his or her religious superior would be uh, granted decisional authority. Uh, in medical situations, and um, one state actually w- went on to say that if a person were incarcerated, uh, a warden in his or her um, facility would be allowed to step into that role. Whereas in another state, that uh, the warden's role was uh, expressly prohibited in any kind of decision making um, about that uh, about a prisoner. So there was a tremendous degree of variation, not only in the individual's names, but the, the level of uh, thought and consideration given to some highly unique situations. Um, another thing that we found pretty interesting was that often, particularly for a person who hadn't been identified through an advanced directive, states wanted to include some additional safeguards and so would describe attributes that a default surrogate should display. Um, So some of those attributes are pretty common sense like being an adult, Um, but actually, as you delve into that further, different states defined adulthood uh, at different ages, 18, 19, 21, eight states allowed for emancipated minors to potentially um, participate in decision-making as a default surrogate. And then also um, other attributes such as availability or readiness to serve. Um, One state gave almost a page-long missive about what are are the different um, considerations in assessing whether somebody is available to serve and uh, ready to be there, whether they were at the bedside, frequency of contact with the medical providers, frequency of uh, contact with the patient before the debilitating illness, etc., and other states left that term undefined altogether. Um, And a lot of states used the words special care and concern. That was a trope that we saw repeated over and over again which I think actually, as a clinician, may not be as difficult to define as you might think. It typically was not defined in the statutes, but maybe more easily identifiable at the bedside. Um, but, uh, but still, it's, it's a pretty vague term.
0: <laughs> okay, so um, I think it's interesting at, at this point just to, to take a moment um, and appreciate have learned which is that uh you know there are a lot of competing interests here we have the um the problem of state variation uh we have the question of sort of the ethical obligations to the incapacitated patient, um, and then of course issues like physician liability um, the role of legislature and how far that goes so i was hoping that josh you could comment on what you see as uh, perhaps the biggest law, or impediments in our current system of advanced directives? What is most concerning to you? Well, I think the
2: focus on a legalistic approach is the one that's been most counterproductive in promoting the goal of effective advanced care planning. So the way the current system is designed that has people thinking in terms of just legal document creates multiple barriers to uh, serving advanced care planning. The first is it makes it difficult simply to create and update advanced directives, and it discourages people from documenting many of the details and the nuances of their preferences beyond what is contained in a, a typical living will document. And it also makes it difficult to use technology because of all these these differences across states that, that we've discussed. And perhaps most of all is it, it shifts what should be a medical process to into a legal one and and moves people from physicians' offices to lawyers' offices. Um and results in patients having what are effectively medical discussions with their lawyers about their preferences. And so what I would say is that the focus, the legalistic focus, has been the biggest flaw, and um, what would make more sense is to shift to a system that is more of a medical one for documenting the preferences that that come out of discussions between patients and their families and and their healthcare providers.
0: Okay, so let's get into some uh, specifics. What would you uh, suggest as some of the potential next practical steps um, for clinicians, for advocates, uh, patients, for legislatures uh, to improve this system?
2: Well, on the legal level, I would encourage states to move to a, a different system. There are ways to, to effectively uh, codify a, a medical approach, as it might be called, and, and that would be to you know, ideally um, put into place laws that, that recognize that Um, any documentation of a patient's preferences should be followed. And in fact, there there are already states that do have such provisions. I will say, for example, uh, any authentic documentation of a patient's wishes uh, should be followed uh, in um, making treatment choices. And apart from that, I would like to see... Uh, legislatures uh, move to harmonize law for advanced directives and remove many of the legal formalities. On the level of uh, clinicians and, and, and patients, um, there's a lot that can be done in, in terms of norms to in, improve the current system. There's already been a, a shift to more of a focus on advanced care planning uh, because uh, clinicians have come to recognize that uh, advanced directives are not by themselves enough to serve um, as an advanced care planning pool. And that focus is, is good and should continue, but I think that there should also be a recognition that patients can be probed to document preferences and document more information about those preferences, even if it's, it's not within the confines of... A traditional living will. They could be uh, creating documents that are, are similar, they could be paper, they could be electronic, but, but just have a lot more information. Um, and so I think that that kind of move uh, away on both the level, um, ideally, of state law, but also on the level of norms and how clinicians and patients approach uh, the process of um, advanced care planning it would be helpful.
0: And in your recent article, you mentioned in particular the role of technology and how there's already um, a little bit of a uh, a precedent uh, for the role of technology in uh, bringing advanced care planning more directly to the patient out of the lawyer's office. Um, Can you just talk a little bit more about how you see uh, that playing a role in making these changes?
2: Yes. Well, I think technology has a lot to offer uh, to overcome some of the, the barriers to uh, using documentation of patient preferences. It's, um, it's broadly accessible to, to patients without having to obtain certain forms. It then can store information in an accessible way and um, even communicate directly with electronic health records. And it offers all sorts of opportunities to use multimedia and just the the other um, powers of technology to help people make decisions. So I think that that's something that should be adopted more broadly. Already there, there are websites that uh, do offer ways for patients to think through their preferences and to uh, document them. Uh, we're working on one such platform uh, at Penn. So I'd like to see those used more broadly. And then the question is, is just how, what do you do about meeting the needs of, of legal requirements? And I, I think that there are ways that technology can exist even in the current legal regime Um, as long as it offers the opportunity for patients to create uh, legally valid advanced directives for those who wish to do so.
0: Great, thank you. And Erin, is there anything that you'd like to add to uh, this idea of uh, how we can uh, see change happen in the future?
1: Yeah, I think that I... I agree with Josh and it's interesting because we're working here at Mayo also on a uh, more video-based platform for advanced care planning, again, seeing, seeing this as a way of buttressing a patient's ability to impact their future care as opposed to replacing the legal document of an advanced directive, but at least allowing for more narrative format so a person is able to communicate with his or her future providers and even leave a message you know, for his or her surrogate decision maker or um, durable power of attorney, uh, kind of empowering them and um, saying why they trust that individual to take on the mantle of responsibility of making decisions on their behalf, so I think a lot of clinicians are recognizing the extreme limitations to the legalization process around advanced directives um, and are trying to find ways to um, to kind of improve that process for patients, and also by extension, it improves uh, the process of decision-making for the clinicians who are caring for these incapacitated patients, which are often intensivists.
0: And given the the critical importance of these issues, but also the various limitations that we've discussed today, I want to wrap up by opening up a question to both of you, which is, what advice would you give um, in particular to clinicians, um, young ones maybe just starting out, um, in how to navigate this system? And then finally, any advice for our patients and their families who are facing this process? I'll start with you, Erin. Erin.
1: Yeah, I think one piece of advice is to familiarize yourself with the um local statutes uh, that govern your own practice. So I know that you've just moved across country and are establishing a new practice in Oregon and so you know having some sense of what the local um legal landscape is there and and what your patients are facing um, can be hugely helpful, both in a pulmonary outpatient practice, but also in the intensive care unit, understanding what the uh, situation is with decisions for incapacitated patients. And so having some familiarity there, and also for clinicians who are practicing in eICUs, this is hugely relevant um, because you may be uh, holding licenses in multiple states and trying to help families remotely uh, reach decisions for incapacitated patients and may be unaware that the laws governing the state to which you are remoting in actually are different from the laws in the state uh, in which you sit. So that's um, kind of an important pearl for intensivists, I think. Uh, for patients, I still, and actually also for all of us, not just patients with advanced illnesses, but uh, for any individual, I think that we have to recognize that right now in 2017, these are the laws that we uh, under which we live. And um, people are afforded, more uh, authority and it's uh, more straightforward if there is a durable power of attorney for health care. And so I do still recommend completing an advanced directive, um, specifically the durable power of attorney for health care. So designating a decision maker. And more important than having that designation is communicating that you have designated that person as your durable power of attorney for health care and sitting down and having A conversation about your care preferences and values doesn't have to be too granular. It's so hard to predict what kind of catastrophes may befall a person in the course of his or her life, but just having a general sense of what um, your values and preferences are so helpful to a person if they were ever to be put into a situation of having to make decisions on your behalf.
0: Thank you so much. I think that's really helpful and particularly highlighting um, some of the complications in in tele-IC medicine, which is becoming increasingly pervasive. Um, So thank you. And finally, Josh, um, we'll finish up by turning this to you and uh, what your advice is again for both clinicians and all of us uh, current or or future patients.
2: Well, I would uh, agree with everything that Aaron said I think for outpatient providers and uh, primary care physicians that um, the focus should really be on getting a general sense of of patients' wishes and values. I still will sometimes see an outpatient discussion that leads to a decision about code status, and I think that that kind of very specific decision that's that's better had in in uh, down the road in in the more specific context of um, a sick patient um, making a a decision um, about uh, care at that point. And I would also say that for patients and families, uh, they often hear that everybody should have an advance directive and as Erin was saying, there is a lot of value in having a healthcare proxy. But I don't think they should get the message that everyone should have a living will for many patients, younger, uh, healthier ones. It, it may not necessarily be helpful to have a living will document that tries to mark out very black and white choices about uh, specific therapies.
0: Okay and and I think that's again you know echoing uh what Erin said that um you know if the take home point it sounds like might be that it's important to have these conversations and to designate someone whom you trust to represent you but the degree of granularity can sometimes be um, misleading if that, if that goes too far. Um, So I guess we'll wrap up by um, just thanking you both so much for your time and for your expertise um, in this conversation Um, to our listeners Um, If you would like to read further information about these subjects, we recommend the work of Charles Sabatino. Um, And if you have any questions about this podcast or being involved in future podcasts with the Ethics Committee, please don't hesitate to contact me, Elizabeth Boulos.